Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. G'day and welcome to The Fred Paul Show on ADH-TV. Before I start, a quick reminder that CPAC Australia is on in Sydney this weekend and it's not too late to get tickets. This is the event of the year for conservatives. Meet like-minded people and hear the best common sense speakers in the country. Just go to cpac.network to find out more. Now, the motto of this show is exercising free speech and ridiculing tyranny while it's still legal, which means that this show might not be around for much longer. We saw what happened to people who challenged tyranny during the COVID fake pandemic, but instead of learning from their mistakes, our governments have realised how much fun it is to terrorise their own citizens and have doubled down on their quest for illegitimate power. First cab off the rank is the tyranny of transgenderism, which comes with its own army of stormtrooping supporters ready to intimidate anybody who dares to say that men make terrible breastfeeders and women can't use urinals. In some states, it is illegal for psychiatrists, therapists, doctors, priests, and even parents to counsel against a child who mistakenly believes he is a she. This has had the chilling effect of driving out sensible professionals from the field, leaving only the proponents of transgenderism to do the work. After all, there might be a law against warning kids not to mutilate their bodies, but there's no law against advising the opposite. The harshest laws are in Victoria and the ACT, a dubious title that soon might be shared by New South Wales if a discussion paper leaked to the trans-friendly Sydney Morning Herald last week is anything to go by. At risk next, at risk next will be the freedom of the media to discuss these issues. The federal government has already declared a plan to give itself the divine power to define what is and isn't true. So how long before it applies it to the factually ambiguous world of transgenderism? It's hard to say, but until then and even after, we at ADH will continue to stand up for the rights of confused teenagers not to have Big Pharma pump them with poison or surgeons mutilate their genitals. Speaking of rights, surely by now we have a right to attend anything more significant than the opening of a fridge without being guilt-tripped into a welcome to country ceremony. 
The wonderful Northern Territory Senator Jacinta Nampajinpa-Price thinks so as well, telling The Australian this morning, there is no problem with acknowledging our history, but rolling out these performances before every sporting event or public gathering is definitely divisive. It's not welcoming, it's telling non-Indigenous Australians, this isn't your country. And that's wrong. We are all Australians and we share this great land. Here, here. We've seen some absurd examples of this lately. There was Uncle Carl Winder welcoming fans to the State of Origin NRL match in Adelaide in May, who switched from welcoming, welcoming us to country to berating us about voting correctly in the forthcoming voice referendum. He wore a loincloth while lecturing us about what way, which way was the more, quote, mature way to vote. I think I'll be the judge of that, Uncle Carl, but thanks anyway. But the most absurd version happens hundreds of times a day around Australia, every time a Qantas jet touches down on Australian soil. Passengers get the welcome to country, then they are forced to endure the nauseating jingle I still call Australia home. Well, make up your mind, Qantas. We can't still call Australia home if it belongs to the local elders, can we? This is yet another manifestation of Western civilization in terminal decline. Our wonderful civilizational inheritance is being buried under the weight of wokeness faster than the body of a Clinton associate after committing suicide. The woke elite are not just cancelling anybody who dares to challenge the transgender unorthodoxy and forcing us to endure welcomes to our own country, they are also cancelling the cultural riches into which we were born, reaching all the way back to ancient Greece via Rome, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment and Romanticism. One of those wonderful inheritance inheritances, which we have arguably already lost, is the literary novel. The long form of storytelling that peaked in the late 19th century, the era of Dickens and Dostoevsky, but is now controlled by publishing companies that are as beholden to the woke anti-West establishment as Jane Austen's heroines were to the aristocratic patriarchy. Of course, for there to be a market for literary novels, you need a readership with an attention span longer than that of a goldfish, which in the age of TikTok is unlikely. But you also need the writers, and they don't exist either. For proof of this, look no further than the absence of any great novel or even Netflix TV series dealing with the global catastrophe of COVID. Here is one of the greatest crimes in human history, complete with greedy villains, millions of innocent victims, and a secret pact between politicians, the media, and pharma companies. Yet no serious novelist has gone, hmm, there might be something in that. Then again, they could be forgiven for thinking there's no point anyway because far greater novelists wrote the definitive novels about COVID last century. 
In, 19, uh, in 1984, written in 1948, George Orwell captured the deceit behind so-called liberal democracies by accurately predicting they will one day slide into a brutal, lying, omniscient oppressor, which is exactly what they did do here and around the world when they locked us up to protect us from a pandemic that barely existed and forced us to be injected with experimental chemicals that did more harm than good. Brave New World, written by Aldous Huxley in 1932, predicted a different dystopia in which citizens are lulled into conformity and loyalty to the state through drugs, casual sex, and a general, generally leisurely life. Again, not far off the mark. And the third novel? Well, that hardly gets mentioned anymore, but it should. It's The Trial written by German author Franz Kafka in 1915, in which the protagonist's world is brutally upturned after he is accused of committing a crime that is never explained and for which a resolution becomes increasingly unlikely. It accurately predicted what is frequently described these days as the process is the punishment. My next guest is experiencing a version of this horrifying fiction for real. Her name is Sal Grover from Queensland. Four years ago, she set up an app for women called Giggle. A man called Roxy Tickle, who identifies as a woman, applied to join. The app's facial recognition software identified him as a man and declined his application. Tickle applied then for the case to be heard uh, by the Australian Human Rights Commission. Grover said she would not comply, so it went to the federal court under the unforgettable title of Tickle versus Giggle. And at first it seemed to be almost as funny, because when Grover, as the owner of Giggle, said she would fight it, Tickle packed up his feather boa and withdrew. But then he received legal support from the Grata Fund, which describes itself as, quote, Australia's first specialist non-profit strategic litigation incubator and funder. Grata develops, funds and builds sophisticated campaign architecture around high impact strategic litigation brought by people and communities in Australia. We focus on communities, cases and campaigns that have the potential to break systemic gridlocks across human rights, climate action and democratic freedoms. The Grata Fund comes with serious legal skills, being associated with some senior lawyers, some of them from the University of New South Wales. Now the case is back on, due to be heard in the federal court next April. Get ready for this to become as celebrated as Kafka's novel. When the voice to parliament fails at the referendum later this year, the focus of the culture wars will shift to sex and gender issues, and this case will be the cause celeb. It promises to be more brutal than the name suggests. This is a case where no compromise is possible, or highly unlikely at least. One side must lose because neither gives the other any credence. It's possible it will wind up all the way, going all the way to the High Court, and so it should. There is a fundamental issue at stake here. 
which is, put simply, should the rights of a man who thinks he's a woman override the rights of women who are? It's not the sort of philosophical, ontological and legal argument you should expect to find yourself simply because you created an app designed as a space exclusively for women. In many ways, Sal Grover is taking one for the team here. This is not the sort of experience a young woman should be forced to endure. Let's find out how she's coping. Sal Grover, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Sal, let's start with how this has affected your life. You became a mother last year and being a young parent is difficult enough under normal circumstances. What sort of pressure is this putting you on, putting, putting you under, I should say? Well, I received the Australian Human Rights Commission complaint uh, when I was 15 weeks pregnant and my daughter just turned one. And by the time there is a resolution of all of this, like if it does go all the way to the high court, she'll probably be two and a half, maybe three. So the first few years of her life, this has been such a big focus of it. It's not just in the background. It is just an everyday, all day focus. But it's been such an unusual experience to have alongside it because, you know, I was pregnant and then I, at 20 weeks pregnant, found out that I was having a girl. Then I uh, gave birth and the court case was withdrawn. I was having these exclusively female experiences. <laughs> and not only that, finding out the sex of my baby before she was even born, while I'm battling um, a you know, sort of institution saying, there's no such thing as biological sex. And I'm like, mm, well, if we're just going based on lived experience here, what about my lived experience? <laughs> well, it's uh, you've got another reason to be um, fighting for women's rights, having become the, the mother of a daughter. Yeah, every time it gets a little bit too overwhelming, and sometimes it does. I mean, 99% of the time, I'm fine with it. I'm just like, you know, you just you sort of have to rise to the occasion. You just do it. And part of the reason why I'm fine with it is because I know I'm right. Mm. I know that no man is a woman. I know that biological sex exists. It's binary. No human being can change their sex. No man is a woman. I know I'm right on this. But the, that tiny percent of time when it, the magnitude of it hits you, it's because you go, wait, there are really powerful institutions that are saying otherwise, and they're lying. But they're, that, that lie is so powerful, and some people really need it to be true. You know, there's nothing here that I like desperately need to be true for any other reason than it just is true. There's nothing in my life that revolves around like, oh, if this isn't true, everything, you know, who am I kind of thing? Hmm. It's just, it is just facts. And you might not like the facts. I mean, I do have an, um, a, quite a bit of empathy for somebody if they really don't want to be the biological sex that they are, that must be a horrible feeling, but you know, that's something that you've got to learn to come to terms with. And the healthiest way a society could deal with that is helping people come to terms with it, not having long court and expensive court cases to try and force other people to believe these lies. Yeah, as I said, uh, I mean, well, it, this is not... You, I mean, if someone has is confused about their gender, it, that's hardly your problem. You said earlier that uh, there are... Um, that there are some powerful institutions... Uh, at work here. I think it is fair to say that you are like Joseph Kay, the protagonist in Franz Kafka's novel, The Trial, who is bewildered and confused about having committed 
an unnamed crime. I mean, are you even aware of what you've done wrong here? <laughs> well, I maintain that I've done nothing wrong, but I will say that what I'm being accused of is something that every single person does every single day. So I'm being accused of gender identity discrimination. Um, and that would mean that I'm, I am discriminating against someone on the basis of the gender identity. Now, why? One, that's just not something that I've actually done. I've actually said discriminated against someone on the basis of their sex, um, which in certain contexts is lawful to do, um, and this would be one of them. Um, you know, every human being discriminates on the basis of their sex, sometimes every day, but in major moments in their life. Like, who are going to marry is, is a discrimination on the basis of sex. I mean, that's where sexual orientation comes into it. We're either heterosexual, homosexual, or bisexual. These are all really relevant concepts in every single person's life. And then to sort of turn around and say, oh, no, there's no such thing as biological sex. It's only gender identity. And you go, you know, I mean, I'm a huge supporter of gay marriage and you go and say, like same-sex marriage and you're thinking, if now all of these institutions are saying there's no such thing as biological sex, what were you guys fighting for all of those years ago? Because you're completely undoing the work that you did. So this isn't even a situation of like you know, an extension of gay rights or anything like that, how sometimes media is positioning it to be. No, it is completely undoing gay rights. I mean, this is a situation where men are claiming to be lesbians, uh, straight women are having mastectomies and taking testosterone and saying that they're gay men. They're just heterosexual women. So the charge of gender identity comes into all of this. So unlike um, the trial, like Kafka's the trial, I do know the charge. It's just... Um, it's just not a really real thing in this particular context because in a, if you've got one person who is um, basically acknowledging sex and somebody else comes in and says, I don't want you to acknowledge sex, I only want you to acknowledge gender identity, and this person says, no, I'm only acknowledging sex, you can't then claim gender identity <laughs> discrimination because it's not what I was even looking for. Because in for my company, an app for women, um, it's an app for females. If you want to just say females, just to keep it kind of a clinical term, um, a female with a trans identity or a gender identity would be welcome to use it. Now, she might call herself a man, and so therefore she would have no interest in going to a woman's space, but she is welcome to use it. So to say that I discriminate on the basis of gender identity is actually incorrect. I discriminate in all of my actions on the basis of sex. Well, can I ask what you... This particular, what, yeah, sorry to interrupt. Can I ask you what... Yeah. What would have been bad about letting this bloke in to use Giggle? Okay, so I've got to sort of um, explain it a bit. So Giggle is a social networking app. It's down at the moment, but it was a social networking app for women where women could find roommates, freelance work, just talk, lesbian dating. We had lots of different sort of little places where women could just hang out online and, and connect. Now, we had tens of thousands of men try to get on. Sometimes it was thousands per day. So that's why we had an onboarding security thing. So this is not a situation of there was just one guy trying to get on. This was thousands. Um, so you you let one on, you have to let every single other man who claims to be a woman on, and then you don't have a woman's only space anymore. It takes one man in a woman's only space, and it's no longer a woman's only space. Now, in the event... I was to say, okay, well, I just just say I was someone who said, I think that trans women are women. I'll, I want them on. I'm then making that decision for all the other women there. 
I'm telling them they have to see these men as women as well. Now, I don't think I have that right. I don't think anyone has that right. I think that if you want to go and you want to make a space that is women plus trans women, so effectively a unisex space, but you're going to brand it as women and trans women inclusive, okay, I'm not going to stop you. I'm also not going to use it but I'm not going to stop you. You should have the freedom to do that. You should also have the freedom to have a female-only space, have male-only spaces as well. These refuges based on biological sex are necessary for safety, privacy, and dignity. Society's been functioning with these for a long time now. They're, they're needed. And this is just undoing all of that and making a mockery of the whole thing, really. Indeed. So, well, your opponent has recently received some serious backing from a formidable group of, of activist lawyers. Who's backing you? Where are you getting your help from, Sal? I am getting my help from just people in the world who care about this issue, and I am just eternally grateful for it. So the reason I asked that sorry we, the reason I asked that question we, is that you are yeah. you're up against more institutional power here. I mean, and you yeah. are just yeah. one woman uh, who is kind of randomly yeah. funding uh, support for a case that if it goes all the way to the high court, you know that you're talking serious money, are you? You're talking you're talking a million dollars. Yeah. Mm. Um, so um, we built our own crowdfunding website because we knew that if we went with, say, like GoFundMe or anything like that, we would be kicked off because big tech um, is is sort of all in on this, I suppose. I mean, I we've tried to do a thing as a company on Kickstarter before. We got kicked off that. We couldn't advertise on Google or Facebook. I mean, we've been silenced at every step of the way. This has not been an easy journey. Um, and so we set up our own crowdfund, uh, gigglecrowdfund.com. We're having a bit of trouble with it at the moment because the payment system that we use, Stripe, has also kicked us off. Oh. So we have to implement a new payment system. <laughs> so every step of the way, I'm experiencing all of these other tech companies who get to discriminate against me on the basis of thought. But if I, again, I don't I come back to, to Again, thought. I come back to Kafka. I mean, this is a dystopian yeah. reality that you're feeling. Yeah. I've got to ask you again, Sal. I mean, you, you smile a lot. You seem pretty good-humoured about it all. And obviously the absurdity <laughs> of, it, of it makes you amusing. Occasionally, but really, what yeah. sort of pressure are you? How much of your time is spent on this, and what sort of pressure has it uh, has it brought on you? And also, how much has it has it diminished the wonderful experience of the first you know year of your life as a parent? Parent, yeah. So I, so I'll answer the first few questions. So it, it takes up all my time, right. all my time, and you know. You've, I've got to raise the money. I've, you know, lawyers ask for different things. You've got to help out with that. Plus, I'm, we're building the new platform to launch the new platform. You're doing that. You're trying to get media to try and get the word out there. It is a full-time unpaid job. Um, and then you've got to try and be a mom at the same time. So it's just lots of balls juggling in the air. As I said before, I know I'm right. So I cling to that. Like, that's what makes me stay sane. I just cling to it. I know I am 100% right. When I have the moments of just, you know, utter despair of I can't believe this is happening and I feel like the world's upside down. Sometimes I actually do go and read those novels like 1984, The Trial. Um, I haven't reread re A Brave New World recently, but I probably should. But I, I do, or I go and listen to just really great thinkers that I've always, you know, really admired, whether that's someone like Christopher Hitchens or someone where I can just, I listen to like the logic and reason and I calm myself with it. And then I just, I also have so much, trust in my legal team who 
are like me. They're just, they're willing to fight to the end on this because it's so important. Because I feel like a bit, I'm the canary in the coal mine here, but I'm not the first that this is going to happen to. I'm not the last. Um, I'm just sort of the one that went, okay, like I, I had no choice but to fight it. And I was sort of in a position where I felt I could fight it a bit. But, you know, you've got to think that in every part of your life, where you could be done for gender identity discrimination purely because you refuse to see a man as a woman. I mean, you, is everyone willing to fight this? Is everyone able to fight it? Well, I, it takes I think people like you to stand, stand up. up. It takes people like you to stand mm. up. We all we all know what the truth is. We often say on this show the truth vindicates, but uh, in some cases people don't live long enough to see that happen. But uh, <laughs> you I'm hoping you will. I mean, the High Court will decide it in a few years. and. And uh, maybe yeah. your daughter will be able to celebrate you as a champion for women. Now, one of the legal issues here, Sal, is the amendment to the Sex Discrimination Act passed, ironically, under Julia Gillard as Prime Minister and Mark Dreyfus as Attorney General in 2013. Now, those amendments to the, sex, to the Australian Sex Discrimination Act um, made it illegal to discriminate against anyone on the basis of gender identity. Previously, it had been race and sexuality and so on. They introduced this new one, gender identity. Back then, it was like, oh, who cares? I mean, that, you know, they, I mean, Mark Dreyfus and Julia Gillard obviously knew something we didn't because now this is an issue. But back then, you could pass that kind of law without anyone really raising an eyebrow. But this is the legal contention here is that this clearly contradicts the convention on the elimination of all forms of discrimination against women. Now, that's a UN resolution to which Australia signed up, I think, in the 70s. Now, Sal, is it possible for those two legal concepts to coexist, that you can't discriminate against someone on their, uh, according to their identity, and you must uh, um, legislate against um, uh, discrimination against women? Are they mutually exclusive? <laughs> No, like this literally doesn't work. As the trans activists will be the first to tell you, sex and gender are different. And I'm always saying, I completely and utterly agree with you. It's one of the reasons why gender should not be in the Sex Discrimination Act. Um, if you want to have something in law to stop gender identity discrimination, okay, but you have to then look at whether it's needed. Because just what gender identity discrimination could be there to, to stop, for example, if you had a man who is wearing women's clothing going to work and say there was a situation where he was like, well, this is not allowed, this is gender identity discrimination. It, it could be very well argued he's being discriminated on the basis of his sex because the reason they're having a problem with him wearing that is because his sex is male. So you go like, do you need gender identity discrimination? I mean, I haven't gone through all of the different like legislation possibilities but that's what legislators are supposed to do and they didn't do that here. And that's, that's one of exactly the problems right. because if... Yeah. If you'd sat there and gone, what are all of the issues here? I mean, it takes seconds to go, oh, hang on, we're going to have male rapists in women's prisons based yeah. on their gender identity. Yeah. And so the fact that they didn't do that means that you have to take it out and rework the laws. So I'm all for the law working for everybody, but it's well, at the moment yes. it's Okay, not. well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. I mean, uh, as I said, very, you know, as simply as possible, the issue here is whose rights prevail? A man who thinks he's a woman or a woman. It's, it, it really does boil down to something as simple as that, doesn't it? 100%. Um, and, you know, 
I will say, if you're a man and calling yourself a woman is what gets you up in the morning and living your best life, like all power to you, I, I don't care. I only care the moment that you're making it my problem because I have to believe that delusion. And I have to go and make changes about how I perceive reality, what I know to be true, what are just established basic facts about the world. Um, then I do have a really big problem with it. And that's what's being asked here. I feel like that what this case really does come down to is freedom of belief. That's obviously not what is actually being fought in, in the court of law. But when I, when I sit there and I break it down to myself, I'm like either I'm forced to believe a man is a woman or I'm not forced to believe it. And I don't think that any citizen in Australia should be forced to believe that anything. Is, that and that is includes exactly, trans people. That's exactly what Kafka Orwell and Huxley warned us about last century and now you are living at Salgrover. More power to you. Thank you for, <laughs> for standing up for freedom of thought and freedom of speech and uh, good luck in the forthcoming case. Thank you so much, Fred. That's Salgrover from the female, the all-women app, Giggle. Introducing the co-host of Parting Shots the weekly news podcast from ADH. Well, obviously it's a very exciting opportunity for Fred. He's been on my back for years to do this with him. So in the end, I just said yes. Yeah, Nick told me about this idea a couple of weeks ago and I thought, couldn't I do one with Alan Jones instead? You couldn't have two more very different guys. Fred's just a knockabout surfy, catches a wave, rides with it. I'm more, bring a bit more intellectual depth to it. Just get below the surface of each issue. Oh, yeah, Nick is so annoying. Just because he's got a weekly column in The Australian, he thinks he knows everything. I worry about the amount of time that Fred spends out in the surf. You know, he's inclined to get a little bit of water on the brain. Oh, 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 hang on. It says on this surf forecast app that the swell's picking up this afternoon. Can we finish this tomorrow? Well, obviously, Fred, Fred asked me to host it. He's you know, he's a great Aussie larrikin, but I, I guess he lacks the, the gravitas that you bring to it as a former newspaper editor. Of course, I only agreed to do the podcast because the boss said I could be the host. I mean, I respect Nick and everything, but you can't have a pommy host of an Australian news podcast, can you? Search Spotify for parting shots. The podcast by Fred Paul and Nick Cater. My Parting Shots co-host, Nick Cater, will be away from the studio this Friday, so in his place will be, as I say in the advertisement, Alan Jones. That's right, Australia's greatest ever broadcaster, Alan Jones, joins me for the weekly roundup of the news in, parting, in the Parting Shots podcast, which you can hear on Spotify every week. Search for Parting Shots on Spotify and you won't miss an episode, especially this Friday, 
with Alan. And here is a topic that will get Alan seriously fired up when we talk about it on Friday. It's the Matildas. Alan loves these nation-unifying moments when Aussie battlers beat the world's best with characteristic grit, and as a result, Aussies everywhere feel a surge in nationalistic pride. And good on the Matildas for dreaming big and having the, de the determination to get there. But, pardon my scepticism here, there is something about the hype around this tournament that reminds me of the ancient Roman phrase, bread and circuses. The poet Juvenal coined the phrase in this poetic passage. The people have abdicated our or, our or their duties for the people who once upon a time handed out military command, high civil office, legions, everything, now restrains itself and anxiously hopes for just two things bread and circuses. In other words, citizens who have lost interest in their responsibility to participate in politics will instead find distractions in the most trivial pursuits. It's similar to what Aldous Huxley was on about in Brave New World. This generation of politics, uh, politicians, or at least their minions, are very well aware of this. Check out this exchange of tweets from Saturday. How about a bet, Emmanuel Macron? If the Matildas win tonight, you'll support Australia in the semi-finals. If France win, I'll support France. Deal? Which attracted the response from Macron. The World Cup is brilliantly co-organised by you, Australia. It's an honour to face the Matildas in the quarterfinals today. But no worries, Les Bleus will take the lead. Deal. Now, firstly, if you think Albo and Macron actually wrote those tweets, you're crazy. They both have teams of young, both these politicians have teams of young minions, if not AI chatbots, to do these things for them. These tweets are designed to, to give gullible punters the impression that nationalism still means something to our leaders, that politicians like Albo and Macron are as patriotic as the fans in the terraces or, even more crucially, the soldiers in the field. This, of course, is rubbish. Modern Western politicians are more loyal to the World Economic Forum and the United Nations than they are to their own people. But they know they need to maintain the facade. You can tell these tweets were written by some recent graduate from a woke social media degree because they assume it's normal for a, for a patriotic sports fan to trade allegiance. When a true sports, when a true Patriots national team is knocked out of a contest, that's it. He doesn't then switch his allegiance to the nation that just eliminated his. What sort of a turncoat does that? Then again, maybe Albo did write that tweet. Check out this comment from Saturday. I'm so proud and so is every Australian. They have lifted up the whole nation at a time where we needed it. And particularly for young girls, also young boys, 
uh, the idea that we've got sold out stadiums watching women's team sport is just so fantastic and their legacy will live on for years to come. Look, what Neil will do. <laughs> Lifted us up just when we needed it. Yeah, we need it all right, Albo. After the damage your divisive voice debate has done, the country could use a little unity. Administrators don't muck around when their sport manages to hit the headlines either. Football Australia has already hit up the federal government for a lazy half a billion dollars, thanks to the Matildas becoming the team of the moment. Well, far be it from me to discourage kids from playing sport. But in my day, we didn't need governments throwing money at facilities to go out and be active. We just got on our bikes, rode down the park and started playing. Or, in my case, went to the beach and started surfing. I've been surfing ever since without a single bit of support from the government. But these days, nothing happens without the government getting involved. Now there's talk of a public holiday if the Matildas win the Cup. That might have been a good idea if half the nation hadn't just come off the better part of a two-year holiday in the form of JobKeeper in which more than 3 million employees were paid by the government to stay home. The last thing the country needs right now is another reason to bludge. Besides, and Alan will get really angry with me about this one, the more hyped a sport, the less authentic it becomes, in my humble opinion. It's why I don't watch the World Cup of anything, let alone women's soccer. I gave up watching AFL years ago and have barely watched a heat of pro surfing since it rebranded itself as the commercially bland World Surf League a few years ago. I mean, this was the defining moment on Saturday night. Into history. Cue the party. Wild scenes in Brisbane. Again, good on the girls for living their dreams. But as a sports fan, it's hardly spectacular stuff, is it? If you're like me and want to watch something a bit more athletic, dangerous and spectacular, check this out. I discovered this sport with my kids when they were young, 20 years ago, when Channel 10's now defunct sports channel used to show games on Friday nights. We used to race home on Friday evenings to watch it, and we each had our own teams in the league to follow. It's called Slam Ball. The sport went into hiatus soon afterwards because it was so expensive to run. But this year, after an injection of money, it's back. And as you can see, it's pretty wild. It's basically basketball with trampolines, but it's got bits of football, hockey, and acrobatics thrown in. The regular 2023 season has just finished and the playoffs start tomorrow in Las Vegas. If you're in the neighbourhood, tickets are still available, so check it out. But if not, you can catch the highlights at slamballleague.com. Or you can watch the Matildas along with Albo, Macron, their respective social media teams and the Australian soccer administrators who want to dip into your pocket to pay for next season's equipment. 
Never forget how badly things, how badly things can go wrong when the government sticks its nose in the well-being of its citizens. The rollout of the COVID vaccines in Australia was, according to the Therapeutic Goods Administration, necessary because, quote, there is an unmet need for safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines during the current public health emergency. Well, that was true, but only because an effective and cheaper alternative, ivermectin, had been banned for use off-label. There were arguments at the time that the TGA had no authority to do this. Well, the TGA's American equivalent, the Food and Drug Administration, last Friday admitted as much. The Epoch Times quoted a lawyer for the FDA telling a court, quote, FDA explicitly recognises that doctors do have the authority to prescribe ivermectin to treat COVID. The court case was brought by three doctors who objected to the FDA telling them how to practice medicine. Their lawyer said, the fundamental issue in this case is straightforward. After the FDA approves the human drug for sale, does it then have the authority to interfere with how that drug is used within the doctor-patient relationship? The answer is no. And there you have it. Another reason to add to the millions we have already to hold a royal commission into this appalling, expensive, deadly debacle. No wonder Albo wants us to watch the Matildas instead. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to come on down to CPAC in Sydney this weekend. Just go to cpac.network for tickets. And if you want to see more ADH content, have a look around our website or app for some of the best commentary in the nation from Alan Jones, Daisy Cousins, Spectator Australia, David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, Dave Pellow, and more. Tell your friends, ADH is the new home for common sense commentary, and there is no shortage of things to comment about these days. I'll see you either at CPAC this weekend or next Monday at seven. Good night.